This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today on the podcast, we're going to cover a severe ENT infection, and that's malignant otitis externa. This is a severe progressive infection of the external auditory canal that ends up involving the skull base. There are several other names for this disease. You may have heard it called necrotizing otitis externa or skull base osteomyelitis. That's basically the pathophysiology. The condition begins as an infection of the external ear canal. There's usually some sort of water exposure. The infection spreads to the temporal bone and the skull base, osteomyelitis develops, and then severe infections can affect the jugular foramen and other intracranial structures. The tricky thing about malignant otitis externa is it exists along a spectrum with your normal run-of-the-mill otitis externa. Basically, these patients have some risk factors that predispose them to spread of that infection if it's untreated. When we look at morbidity and mortality, without therapy, this can be a deadly disease. Mortality rates can reach 50%. Even now with appropriate therapy, there's still a significant morbidity and mortality. This means that we have to make the diagnosis and make sure the patient receives appropriate therapy. Let's look at some risk factors here. By far, the most common one is diabetes. About 90% of patients will have diabetes, and there are a couple of different reasons for this. They have impaired blood flow, wound healing, and there's also increased pH in the diabetic cerumen. All of those factors create this perfect medium for bacteria to grow. Another major risk factor is any form of immunosuppression, especially in patients with HIV or patients who have received a transplant. The final major risk factor is older age. There are some case series where the only risk factor was older age. These patients didn't have diabetes and there was no other immunosuppression. Older patients, unfortunately, also have more complications and higher mortality. Overall, this disease is extremely rare in kids. There are less than 20 reported cases in the literature. When we look at the most common organisms, Pseudomonas is the most common microbe causing this disease, especially in diabetic patients. Most studies suggest it's present in up to 90 to even 95% of cases. But not all patients have just Pseudomonas there are other bacterial causes. Klebsiella can account for about 20% of cases, and up to about a third of cases can be due to Staphylococcus aureus. A significant number of these will be due to MRSA. There are also fungal causes. You're going to see these in patients with severe immunocompromise, like that patient with uncontrolled HIV or the transplant patient. The most common fungal organism is Aspergillus, but another one is Candida. In HIV specifically, 
Pseudomonas is most likely if the CD4 count is less than 100, but if it's less than 50, think about aspergillus. How do these patients present? Well, they're usually going to come in with severe ear pain that's been progressing over a week or even two weeks. The pain is unrelenting. It's usually worse at night or when the patient tries to chew. They can have hearing changes, but the other issue that patients commonly describe is this diffuse, purulent drainage from the ear. Many of these patients have been treated for otitis externa probably a couple times, but they'll have failed these topical treatments. For the most part, fever, chills, rigors, those classic systemic findings, they're not very common in this disease. On your exam, pain out of proportion is a major red flag for malignant otitis externa. You may find significant purulent odorrhea. That's another major clue to this diagnosis. The external auditory canal will be swollen, it's going to be tender, but the TM is usually normal. When you look at the floor of the canal, you might find granulation tissue or you might even see exposed bone. If the patient is immunocompromised, they have HIV, they may not have that granulation tissue because these patients don't have that normal immune response. As that infection begins to affect the skull base, you can see cranial nerve palsies. The most common one is a facial nerve palsy. Once the infection begins to involve the jugular foramen at the skull base, then you'll start to see deficits with cranial nerves 9, 10, and 11. Later on, if the infection continues, then patients can have those severe complications like a dural sinus thrombosis, meningitis, or a cerebral abscess. There is actually a staging system that incorporates all those findings that you can see on your history, your exam, and it takes into account how the infection progresses. Stage one is necrotizing external otitis, but there's no cranial nerve involvement. Stage two is a limited skull-based osteomyelitis, and these patients might have facial nerve involvement. Stage three is extensive skull-based osteomyelitis. They can have involvement of cranial nerves 9, 10, 11, or 12, or they may have a significant intracranial infection. Prognosis is worse in patients who have involvement of their cranial nerves, there's severe bony erosion, or there's intracranial involvement, but there's also worse outcomes in patients who have a fungal cause or if there's a relapse after treatment. The big takeaway here is think about malignant otitis externa in patients who have severe ear pain, there's a lot of purulent orderia, or if they've been treated for otitis externa with topical agents but are getting worse. Look for those risk factors, but don't rule out the disease just because the patient doesn't have diabetes listed on their past medical history. They could be a diabetic or they could have HIV, but it hasn't been diagnosed yet. The key to diagnosis is just having this condition on your differential. 
look for those risk factors and those red flags. Most of our labs really won't help us with the diagnosis. The white blood cell count might be elevated, but it's usually normal. Same with the inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP. Don't use normal values to rule out the disease. The most important lab is a culture of the odorrhea. Send that for bacterial and fungal culture. Imaging can help us here. The first line in most EDs is going to be a CT of the temporal bones. You're looking for any evidence of bony erosion, soft tissue changes in the subtemporal region, or the formation of an abscess. The problem with CT is that it potentially can miss cases that are early or if there's not much bony erosion. MRI is the other imaging option. It's better at looking for soft tissue changes, especially early in the disease. It's also better for looking at involvements of the medial skull base or the medullary bone spaces. An early sign of infection on MRI is involvement of the retrocondylar fat pad. MRI can also help determine the extent of the disease. The big negative is that it's not available in all EDs. The other imaging options are gallium and bone scanning. I've never worked in an ED where I can obtain these, but they might be more specific. All right, so we've talked about your history, the exam, your evaluation. Let's finish with treatment. The first step, speak with your ENT colleagues early. You need to get them on board. Antimicrobials are the other foundation of therapy. You need a regimen that covers the most likely bugs like Pseudomonas, and you also need to base your decisions on how severe the disease is. Most patients will need six to eight weeks of antibiotic therapy. If you have an immunocompetent patient with more mild, uncomplicated disease, there's no severe bony erosion, you could use a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin. Fluoroquinolones for the most part cover pseudomonas, and they also have excellent bony penetration. Ciprofloxacin is the most commonly studied antibiotic in this disease. If the patient is PO tolerant, the oral route is just fine. One potential issue here is that Cipro alone doesn't provide great gram-positive coverage, and it won't cover MRSA. If the patient has had prior abscesses or they've had MRSA infections, think about adding something like doxycycline, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or clindamycin with that fluoroquinolone. You'll need to base these decisions on your local sensitivities. If the patient is septic, they're toxic, or there's significant bony erosion, they're immunocompromised, that's another story. These patients need a fluoroquinolone with an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam. Your options could be something like pepicillin tazobactam, cefepime, or meropenem, plus a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin. Again, add MRSA coverage if you're concerned about MRSA. Now, when it comes to fungal coverage, that's going to be a little bit more difficult. Many of these patients are going to have HIV 
or they'll be severely immunocompromised. And this is the exact situation where we need to think about a fungal infection. Get the culture of the odorrhea and speak with your ID specialist. The options are voriconazole or liposomal amphotericin B. Voriconazole might be more effective based on RCT data. There are some interventions that really don't have much of a role in malignant otitis externa. The first one includes topical antibiotics. These can decrease the yield of the culture. Surgical excision also usually plays no role. Debridement or biopsy might be used to exclude cancer, but that's going to be left to the ENT specialist. The final intervention is hyperbaric oxygen. This might be used as an adjuvant therapy for refractory cases, but a Cochrane review found no clear evidence that demonstrated any efficacy. Disposition depends on the patient appearance, their hemodynamic status, if their pain is under control, also the severity of the disease, your ENT consultation, and then the ability to obtain follow-up. If the patient has adequate pain control, there's no severe immunocompromise, there's no cranial nerve deficits, and you can obtain ENT follow-up and they're on board with your management plan, that patient might be appropriate for discharge with oral antibiotics. If the patient has severe pain that you're unable to control, there's severe immunocompromise, there's cranial nerve involvement or severe bony erosion, those patients will need to be admitted. In summary, malignant otitis externa is a severe progressive infection of the external auditory canal that involves the skull base. The most common microbe is Pseudomonas, but you also have to think about some other issues like MRSA and fungal causes. Look for risk factors like diabetes or severe immunocompromise like HIV or a transplant recipient. Most patients will present with severe ear pain that's progressing with significant odorrhea. Obtain a culture of the odorrhea and consider starting with a CT scan. Your treatment is going to include involving ENT and antimicrobials. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 